0: And thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Today's conference is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. And now I'd like to turn the meeting over to the Director, President, and CEO of the Wilson Center, Congresswoman Jane Harman. You may begin.
1: Thank you, operator. And good afternoon, buenos tardes, and welcome to those joining this call from the United States, from Colombia, and from around the world. Uh, this is the Wilson Center's 152nd, I'm not making this up, 152nd Ground Truth Briefing, which is a telephonic discussion uh, with thought leaders, scholars at the Wilson Center, our own experts, and others uh, talking about the, the the most pressing problems in the world. Uh, discussions like today's are the reason that the Wilson Center has been named the number one think tank in the world Uh, four regional studies, three times in a row. So today's topic is um, the coronavirus response in Colombia, views from leading practitioners. And as most people on this call know, Colombia is Latin America's fourth largest economy. And while it's 3,000 confirmed cases are not the highest number in Latin America, the pandemic is taking more than a medical toll on Colombia. Uh, which has welcomed over 1.8 million Venezuelan refugees over the last five or six years. Uh, this is a staggering number, and it is expected to continue to rise. Providing food, medical care, shelter, and work permits for that many people is difficult at any time, but it is a monumental task while simultaneously confronting a world pandemic. Joining us today are two of Colombia's finest civil servants, Luis Plata was recently asked by President Duque to to leave the private sector and coordinate the government's coronavirus response. It is never easy to coordinate government action across multiple ministries, as we are learning in the United States, but Luis possesses unique skills from the business world as well as his experience as Minister of Commerce, Industry, and Tourism from 2007 to 2010. Also joining us is Felipe Munoz, who who serves in the office of the presidency as the advisor for the Venezuelan-Colombian border. Felipe has worked tirelessly to provide a humane response to the Venezuelan refugee crisis and to convert the challenge of refugee integration into an economic opportunity for all of Colombia. His work has been exemplary. Colombia stands as an example of how governments and societies can respond to large numbers of people fleeing political oppression as well as economic and social collapse. Uh, I must say, having been to your country, it is both beautiful and it has overcome its tragic uh, history uh, in such an impressive way. And all of us in the United States who are struggling with this are looking to your country in admiration. Today's event is part of a broader series by the Latin American Programme the Mexican Institute, and the Brazil Institute at the Wilson Center to call attention to the region's struggle with the pandemic and to help shape constructive responses. I invite you to visit a newly established website containing valuable resources and links to the websites of leading institutions, health ministries, and other sources of information and analysis concerning the Latin American and Caribbean region. Moderating our discussion is our very own Cynthia Arnsen, the exceptional director of our Latin American program. Special thanks to Cindy and her team for enormous hard work on an ongoing basis and for excellent programming in these difficult times. Please join me in welcoming Cindy Arnsen.
0: Jane, thank you so much, and especially thanks to Luis Guillermo and and Felipe for joining us. Colombia, as Jane mentioned, is Latin America's fourth largest economy, and as of yesterday, it had confirmed over 3,100 cases of the coronavirus and registered 131 deaths. These figures come from the Ministry of Health, and they're not the highest in the region, but as Jane was mentioning, Colombia is also home to the largest number of Venezuelan refugees anywhere in the world over 1.8 million by the end of last February, according to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, Some Venezuelans, some six to 7,000, it seems, have opted to return to Venezuela in the face of the pandemic. And the returns that are taking place by busload and also by plane have in many cases been brokered by local officials on both sides of the border. But the number of returnees is small In comparison to those who remain and many more may still come as venezuela's economy continues to collapse president duque imposed a quarantine on march 25th and he's extended it for now until at least the end of april Um, the government has also asked the imf for an 11 billion dollar line of credit to face the pandemic and it's made urgent requests to the international community to increase humanitarian support for Venezuelan refugees, as well as their host communities. USAID, China, Canada, the UAE, Germany, and others have provided technical assistance, medical supplies, and financing. The good news is that in 2020, the World Bank and the IMF predict that the contraction of Colombia's GDP will be the smallest of any of the large economies of the region. The bad news, of course, is that Colombia, which last year was one of Latin America's best performers in terms of GDP growth, will go into recession along with all other countries of the region. So it is a true pleasure to welcome Luis Plata and Felipe Munoz to this call. Given all of your critical responsibilities, we especially appreciate your time. So please, um, Luis Guillermo, you go first, followed by Felipe, and then we'll begin the conversation. Thanks again.
2: Cindy, thank you so much. Um, It was not long ago that we we met in Cartagena with the board of the Wilson Center, and we're all happy and and going out to dinner and sharing drinks and having a good time and having some nice conversations. And, you know, it was not, not, it was just maybe less than two months ago, I believe, and uh, couldn't imagine that this was gonna happen and you know, that I'd be put in this, in this position at, at that time when we're uh, having the discussions. Um, so I'll share with you a bit of what's been my personal experience and what's happening here in Colombia, um, what we're doing and uh, also, you know, we're working very closely with Felipe here and on the call as well, on how we manage the situation with Venezuela given the the terrible um, situation they're in and and the lack of resources they have to, to manage this pandemic. So right a few just a few weeks after after we had this meeting in Cartagena, the President called me as I was preparing to to go into quarantine. I was actually heading out to our country house with my wife, two dogs and our our son. And all of a sudden, the president called me up and said, listen, I, I need to talk to you. Can you come by my office? So obviously, I, I I was there that same evening. And he said, listen, this is going to be very, very complicated. And uh, we're just beginning. At the time, I think we have, I don't know, 50 or 60 uh, people infected in Colombia. And he said, I, I need someone to help me coordinate all the, all the, all the efforts of the, of the state to manage this. We need a... Uh, uh, Response an integral response to the problem, and um, I want you to help me with that. And obviously, you know, um, uh, I knew what this what the meeting was for. Uh, we had had a long discussion at home about this, you know, uh, because this has implications for for the whole family. And um, you know, it's like sometimes in in life you can't say no to certain things, and this was one of those things I couldn't say no, understanding that it would have huge, huge impact on, on, on my family and on myself and, you know, paying a, a cost for that. So from a personal perspective, it's been a, a tough choice. You know, I, I haven't touched my wife or my son in what a month now almost. Um, I, I sleep in a separate room. I bathe in a different bathroom. I, I have a separate closet. You know, I come home every evening. I'm exposed to people. I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not at a hospital, but nonetheless, I'm expo- exposed to to meeting many people during the day, so I come home and I basically undress uh, in the um, in the hallway, uh, put on my pajamas or put some you know a t-shirt or something, and then go in and then and, uh, and take a shower and um, try to have dinner with the family late at night. Uh, so it's been a been a tough it's been a tough personal experience from that sense, you know, uh, and hopefully be a very rewarding one in the future if we manage to to contain this. But so far, it's been it's been very demanding. I have not experienced this kind of stress in a long time. Uh, it's not pleasurable when you wake up in the middle of the night and, and, and you feel like you're not doing enough, that you should be doing more, that that you don't really understand what's happening, that you don't really, really understand the, the, the medical implications of this. You know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an epidemiologist. I've been in the government, I've been in the private sector. Um, I've been with McKinsey & Company. I've uh, been an entrepreneur, uh, so basically my skill set is, is how, how to organize things, how to build teams, how to, how to introduce method, and how to organize chaos. Essentially, that's what I know how to do, and that's why President um, Duke called me up. But you know, nonetheless, I I wish I had some knowledge of, of medicine and epidemiology uh, as as we go through presentations and, and articles and, and books and. And listen to experts you know obviously climbing it up on that on that curve as, as as quickly as i can so basically uh we are attacking this from from several different angles one is the economy you know we don't believe that that you sacrifice the economy in order to save lives or that that uh that uh, you know you you save the economy and then you sacrifice people's lives no i think we think that there's no such uh, dichotomy. That really, you need the economy to help you save, save lives. You need the resources. You need things working in order to do so. And you need the health system, obviously, to to for the economy to continue to operate. So we we have several several teams. One team dedicated to you know how do we make the economy work as much as we can. How do we prevent um the you know more more. Uh, Bankruptcies and more people going jobless, and I think our Ministry of, of uh, Finance, together with the National Planning Department, are managing that in a in a quite good way. and, and so far, we're struggling, of course, like everybody else is doing. But uh, in middle things, I think we're doing quite well. The second big big pillar we're working on is is uh, supply and and food, and this is important in every country. Of course, you need to be able to maintain supply lines you need to be able to maintain uh, supermarkets well stock uh, and and all those the, the supply chain working but in the case of economies like Colombia and developing economies in general you know we have a very very large um, portion of population working in what we call the informal economy these are people that essentially live on a day by day basis that don't are not formally employed that don't have uh, health insurance that don't have a uh, Pension that don't have any of the, of the formal um, uh, um, re- requisites of a, of, a, of holding a job, so basically these people run out of income the moment the economy shuts down, and not necessarily because the, the the government declares a a quarantine, just because if there's no people out in the streets, these people don't don't have a way to feed themselves, and these are the people who are out on the streets and and they make their their daily living by selling. Maybe uh, coffee in in a a corner, you know, or by by shining shoes, or doing any kind of job that allows them to to have a a a, to sustain themselves and their families, but they live on a day to day basis. So this has been our biggest priority: is how do we ensure that these people are properly fed? That you know we don't end up killing more people from hunger or from um, public. or public. What's the right word in English for that? Um,
0: public order.
2: Uh, public order. Yeah, like you know. Crime, crime or, and
0: violence, basically.
2: Crime and violence, and, and not because they're criminals, but because they're hungry, right? I mean, and you have millions of people doing this, and you do have a, a huge problem. So there's about 18 million people in Colombia. Not all of them informal, but many of them are who are in, in, in danger of, of being being hungry. So we've been able to to provide for them. For most of them, we. Provide a, a, a basic um, sustainability income, and for the ones that are not in the in the in the in the, in the databases, uh, we can't reach, you know, through a through a a, through a, um, a cell phone. We cannot deposit money to their account. Then we have to feed them, and basically we're giving away over a million a million uh, uh, mercados, the basic um, you no know, food for 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 at least two weeks for families. To, to feed on, so so that's that's where the, the emphasis was placed in the beginning. You know, we have to make sure that that nobody goes hungry, because the the social upheaval of having millions of people going hungry after three four days without food or without access to food would be a, a disaster. And um, and there's something nothing you can do about this. You know, if, if people go hungry, they they will go into stores. They will go into supermarkets. They will they will take what what they can. And, and there's not much as a, as a society we can do there. So, first priority was to make sure that people were, were properly fed and they would have the, the enough sustenance to to avoid going to a public order or a crime and violence situation. Obviously, the third pillar is health, and health is, is obviously the, the biggest pillar here. Um, but I, I saved it for later because I think food was most important in the very beginning. You know. Um, Health situation is is deteriorating, but thankfully we were able to do a a, a lockdown uh, quite fast, as you pointed out, Cindy, and it's going to go until the end of this month. So that has allowed us to to stay reasonably low in terms of infected people and in terms of of, of of deaths. And I'm going to look for the for the for the latest number here, so I, I'm not saying something that is not correct, um, but I was going to, let me see if I can find this, uh, this morning's report, I'm looking for it. Uh, this morning's report. So, this morning, Colombia, we have, so we have in the whole country, we have three thousand one hundred five cases of which 2,522 remain active, and we have at at this moment 408 people in primary care and hospitals, and 98 people at the at the ICUs, and we've had at this moment uh, a total of uh, 131 uh, deaths. So, in in terms of the balance, you know, I mean, it's it's awful to talk about. About people dying, like statistics. Um, but we're doing fairly well. We're doing fairly well compared to to other countries. We're doing fairly well compared to Latin American countries uh, of of uh, even of of larger and smaller population. Colombia is is doing quite well in in that sense, and the quarantine has has helped us contain um, the spread of the, the disease. Um, of course, this will, this will continue to increase. We're increasing at a rate of about 105, 120 cases per day, and say, say maybe 10 8, 10, 10 deaths per day. That's, that's sort of more or less what we're, we're averaging. Um, but, you know, we know that things will get uglier, and we know that uh, the curve tends to, to get steeper. So we're doing essentially five things here that are the most important. Number one, testing. So obviously everybody's talking about testing and how Korea's done testing and this and that. Uh, I've become an expert in testing. I know, I know now the, the PCR testing, I know the antigen testing, I know the antibody testing. You ask me any question of testing, I can. hopefully I can, I can answer that now. But um, this is an important part of our strategy um, and we are increasing our testing capacity. Right now we're at uh, about 2,000 tests per day. We're increasing that capacity to 5,000. We we managed to get permission from the White House to import a a Hamilton roller machine that does the RNA extra- extraction. I was not aware of something, and I'll, I'll make a, a quick stop here, but when when people talk about testing, they say, oh, you could have to test, you have to test, you know, and, and people call you and ask and, and offer you millions and thousands and millions of, of testing kits. But one thing I didn't know is that for doing it, the molecular PCR testing, which is the most, the most accurate one, you need to have what they call an extraction kit, an RNA extraction kit. If you have no RNA extraction kit, basically you can't test. because it's one-on-one. One extraction kit per turn, one, one of the, the diagnostic tests. And while there's a lot of tests in the world, the supply for tests is, is quite huge their supply for extraction kits is is totally depleted. So that has put us in a a difficult situation. We're resolving that. That's been one of my biggest issues. How do we get the the extraction kits? And now we've managed to secure three million of those. But the challenge is there, you know, having enough extraction kits that we can produce, that we can do all the testing that we we need to do. And um, and that's been a, a a key issue. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to, to increase testing very soon. The expected, the expected date of arrival in the machine is on the 20th of this month, so that will help us greatly. The second thing that we're working on, it's, it's ventilators. We need to increase our ICU capacity. Columbia's ICU capacity right now is 5,400, and if you compare that to New York's ICU capacity, the U.S. ICU capacity is very, very small. Uh, so what we're doing is we try to optimize the ICU capacity uh, by postponing surgeries. So for instance, if I have to have a knee surgery, I can do that next year. Or I have to have a, a you know a, a shoulder surgery, I can do that some other time. And really prioritizing what what is truly an urgency. So we managed to to free up a lot of the ICUs, and we have now 2,650 ICUs ready for COVID-19. Okay, now that's not enough, certainly. Uh, but what we're doing now is, is doing what everybody else is doing. We kind of buy ventilators in the open market. That's been extremely challenging because it's a it's a market which is totally over over demanded, and so we're competing against 180 countries to to get ventilators. And well, it doesn't help much when the U.S. says we will not make, we will not export ventilators, and when Germany says we will not export ventilators, and um, you know we don't produce them, so obviously getting a hold of those, it's, it's much more challenging. Um, but we're working on that. We've been able to acquire some. Uh, we're also working on, there's uh, 26 initiatives, local initiatives of building um, ventilators in Colombia. And also where we're hopeful that companies like, like GM and Ford and others will be able to increase the ventilator supply um, shortly. I was talking to an executive at Medtronic not long ago, and he's telling me that... Uh, the ventilator supply, the demand for ventilators in the world uh, prior to this, this pandemic was about 50,000 units a year, and the, the current uh, demand now is about 2.5 million units per year. So you can see certainly what the challenge is there. We need to at least ramp up our capacity to at least 10,000 um, 10, uh, um, SU units, uh, and, and that's that's... One of my biggest challenges right now and what I'm working very hard on is try and do that. The other thing that, that we're working on, the third pillar, is is, a, is a, what you call EPP or protection, or, or it PP in English, I don't know, protection equipment for medical professionals. That's the medical personnel. That's, that's the, the, the masks, that's the overalls, The the, the, the latex gloves all of that, we need to buy those by the millions. Um, you know, it, it's scary to see in, in the news when you see that, medic, that the doctors in New York are saying that they don't have enough, enough protection equipment. Uh, well, that's the case in New York, where, you know, you have such vast resources. Imagine what is it like for the rest of the world. And so we are, we are doing this uh, at a big, big scale. We need to build a national stockpile and that's that's one of my my big priorities right now is how do we get to that national stockpile? We've opened a, a huge um, um, RFP just two days ago, and uh, you know uh, we have over 400 vendors uh, now there. Uh, but we need to close these deals very quickly and start getting as many as many of these um, items as as soon as possible. Um, Fourth pillar is how do we expand our infrastructure? So how do we take uh, hotels? How do we take um, how do we take uh, stadiums or coliseums or you know convention centers and make those into 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 hotels? We took into I'm uh, sorry into hospitals. We took the largest uh, convention center in Bogota called Corferias and we put there 2,200 2, beds together with the city of Bogota. But we need to replicate that in other parts of the country as well. So that's an important thing. And That's number four, and then number five would be how do we ensure that we have enough uh, enough medical professionals to support the the emergency, enough doctors, enough nurses, enough uh, technicians, and how do we train uh, you know doctors who are not who, who's uh, who are not trained for ICUs? How we train? How do we train them into into becoming Sort of, um, we call them in, in Spanish intensivistas, which is, are the, the doctors that actually manage the ICUs. And so we need to turn other types of doctors with other types of skills into into intensivistas or ICU doctors, I guess, would be the right the right word to use. So I, I'll stop right there because I've been talking too much. I'll, I'll stop right there and, and happy to to have a more of a conversation and, and to answer any questions that that you may have.
0: Great, Luis. Thank you so much for that, um, Felipe.
2: Thank you, Jane
3: and Cynthia, as for me it's an honor to be here at the Wilson Center. And just very briefly, uh, as Jane said, we have received 1.8 million Venezuelans and migrants and refugees in the last three years. It accounts now for the 4 percent of the population of Colombia. And in, in normal times, it is a very hard task. Uh, uh, it, it put a, a, a very heavy burden in all of our social services. But now with the pandemic, we, we got a, a consensus in the government, especially the president. This pandemic doesn't ask for passport. Then the government support can neither ask for, the, for it. Then we decided to transport the normal program that we have for migrants and create a, a six-point plan to integrate the migrants in the response. First of all, to, uh, with a responsible humanitarian border management. As you already know, we have to close the border with Venezuela because there is a high risk of epidemiological risk posed uh, by crowds at the border crossing points, but especially because we have limited information available from Venezuela about what is the reality of the health conditions there. Then we have to establish a humanitarian corridor to let so many people that want just to return to Venezuela to let them go. And from the close of the border to now, we have led more than 33,000 people to return to Venezuela. Of course, the conditions there are not mm, are not good, but uh, we can prevent that some of the people want just to return. The second and most important thing, and this is following some of the recommendation from UNHCR, International Organization of Migration, or World Health Organization, is guarantee the healthcare access for all the migrants. The Minister of Health signed uh, like a, um, a order to all the public health sector, that any migrant in any condition, regardless if it's regular or if it's an irregular status, has guaranteed to receive the health services as, as COVID is concerned. The third one, the third line of work is that we have to adjust all the cooperation programs that we have um, that, that are in place and we need to transform these cooperation programs, especially to three main uh, focus ideas. The first one is trying to improve the water and sanitation programs, because there are some zones in Colombia, especially zones where all some of the migrants or refugees live, where you don't have uh, the proper condition for water and sanitation, Then we, we need to reinforce this program. The second, which is really important, is how to uh, increase the capacity for the programs in cash transfers. Cash transfer is the best way, in these kind of specific uh, situations, just to provide the people for money, and in that, in that way they can buy food and they pay the rent. Because the majority of the migrants are vulnerable population and are people that work in, on a daily basis in the informal sector. Then when, when, when the quarantine began, these people is, um, is, is the staying in a most vulnerable situation. Then we transfer all the cooperation programs. We work with, with more than 63 between UN agencies and international and national NGOs, civil society, working uh, in a normal time with uh, supporting all the migrants and refugees. But now we have to transfer all the programs and we are working very closely trying to uh, focus in water in cash transfer programs, and in, pro- in programs that providing food. The fourth line of, of, of work is that we want to include as much as we can in the supporting programs leading by the government, uh, including the migrants. The first is that uh, we provide 200,000 basic food baskets for almost one million people, in 47 municipalities where the majority of the migrants are located, to give them this basic food basket for two weeks, just to provide them with some food. But also all the kids, more than 150,000 kids, that previously the pandemic they received the 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 the, the food, the, the, the school feeding program, they are continue receiving the school feeding program now in their houses, in their homes. And also we include 50,000 migrants in as we call the solidarity income programs because those migrants have been regularized before and now as part of the database of the, of the, of the national government. But also we have to focus not only in sectors, but also geographically. Then we uh, choose four municipalities uh, Ipiales and the border south with Ecuador, because uh, there are so many Venezuelans that want to return from Peru and Ecuador to Colombia. And then we have to um, reinforce our capabilities at the border zones in the south with Ipiales and in the north, uh, Maicao and La Guajira, and Villa del Rosario in in, San, in north Santander, which is the state which is unlimited with Venezuela, and also Swacha which is a municipality uh, close to Bogota. Then we focus on a special program to these four specific municipalities. And last but not least important is that we need to strengthen coordination and information sharing. The most complicated thing is that so many of these migrants and refugees, we don't have information because they are in irregular status. Then we need to improve the capacity with the international organization to provide so many, so many telephone, uh, telephone lines and websites just to provide to the migrants information about that they have the, the, the possibility to, to go to the healthcare access if they feel any of the symptoms about the pandemic or how all these programs can um, be, uh, how they can be part of these programs of support. Of course, this is a comprehensive program that we have to transform in the last three weeks. And of course, we, we, we can cover everyone, but this isn't the right pathway. and the main message here is that we need more international support. Colombia has been doing an incredible job, not only the national government, especially the local governments, international organizations, the civil society, but we need, because this is the most on their front, and um, migratory crisis in the world right now. And of course, in these times of pandemics, when you need more money just to support all these people, we can do it a lot.
2: Thank you.
0: Felipe, thanks for so much for that. I have a couple of questions. I'd like to um, remind people that if you'd like to get in the queue um, to ask a question, uh, please press um, star one. Um, and my... Uh, My assistants here uh, will correct me if that's the wrong, um, if that's the wrong indication. Um, My first question really is for um, Luis, and it's more of a general sort of political question, which is um, has to do with how Colombians in general are perceiving the government's response to the crisis. Um, As we all know, there were protests last year that seemed to have fizzled out, but has the management of the crisis? serve to help President Duque standings in standing in the polls, and do you think that there are um, additional political risks going forward? You mentioned the the problem of orden público of crime increasing as people are hungry, but um, you know political risks that come out of these economic hardships that the country is facing.
2: Sure, sure, Cindy. Well, since I'm the since I'm the manager for the response, I have to say we're doing great. That people love us. No, I'm just kidding.
1: Uh-huh. Just, uh,
2: just, <laughs> just, Just kidding. But I think, uh, I mean, being on a, on a serious note, uh, I've heard very, very positive comments. I think uh, President has been very, very assertive in his communication. He has a TV program every day at 6 6 p.m. Um, and different members of the cabinet participate, depending on the topics that we that we we'll be discussed in the program people appreciate that people appreciate that we've been very forthcoming with the, with the response and and they they feel that that we acted timely uh, and that's probably the most the most common uh comment that I hear that that you guys people saying you guys acted timely and we were one of the the, the the first to go into quarantine so that was helpful you know um, nonetheless of course I mean the challenges are huge um and I think uh, you know we're still in a very early stage where people have a lot of hope. You know, we we all have we all have wishful thinking. We think, oh, it's gonna be this is not gonna be so bad here. You know, we're gonna be able to navigate this. It's not gonna be like in other places. Mm-hmm. So I think people's expectations now are are high too. But I think you know sooner than later, I mean, you're forced to 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 uh, face the the realities of of. Uh, of the COVID nineteen, and, and uh, I think um, you know things will get more difficult. But, but to, to answer your question, I think uh, the image of President Duque is, is improved a lot. I mean, he's he's getting a lot of uh, public support for this. There, there, I haven't seen any recent polls on on an image or popularity of the president. But uh, the comments that I hear, and then I, I have to say, obviously, I, I I my universe, the universe of people that I interact with these days is is quite um, quite smaller, but uh, generally speaking, the comments are, are very good.
0: Thanks very much. And another question related to the predictions about the future, you mentioned all the things that Columbia is doing to increase its capacity and uh, trans, you know, transforming infrastructure and increasing uh, the number of ICU beds. Um, there's a, a sense that in Europe and and even in the United States that the quarantines are serving to kind of flatten the curve. That's the phrase of the day. Um, But that in emerging market countries, um, the worst is yet to come. And I was wondering how you see um, the coming weeks or coming months in terms of the number of new cases, um, especially as testing capacity uh, remains robust but probably not as uh numerous as, as um could uh could one
2: would be like yeah. 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 No, that's a that's a very very good question. And um, let me start by saying um that th- this week we had some very good news. Uh given given the, the quarantine, our rate of infection, what the experts call the RO, uh the RO went down to two point four. To 1.2. Um, so, and that is huge. The row basically is, is at the rate of where how we infect other people. So, for instance, if we had a row of three, just to, to make it simple, you know, um, Luis Plata would infect three other people. And those three, three others are those three, three others. So, you do the math, and it's huge. Um, So coming down from a row of 2.4 to a row of 1.2 was a big, big um, achievement for us, and that was obviously because of the quarantine, and that has allowed us to sort of flatten the curve quite a a bit. Now, we know that we cannot continue under quarantine, definitely, and uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, we'll be going out of quarantine at the end of the month. And so we'll, we'll have to see how, how that role behaves, what happens with the, with the role once we open a quarantine. We're being, being very careful with that. We are doing what we call intelligent um, um, isolation program. And that means that we basically are going to be opening up sectors of the economy and, and sectors of the country where we feel it's, it's safer to do so and uh, and we can sort of contain that, you know. Um, so as opposed to what we did earlier, that we shut down, I mean, and we quarantined the whole country, irrespective of where you live, or or um, age, or or the profession. What we're doing now is we're starting to open the economy slowly, but in a in, a, in an intelligent way, choosing very carefully carefully what we open, what we don't open, uh, making sure that the public transportation is there at the enough capacity so we don't have too many people to a single uh, bus or a single um, car? Uh, so we're doing that, and we will have to see how the, the row behaves. But the, the good news is we've been we've managed to bring the row down from, from 2.4 to 1.2, and now the challenge is going to be how how can we keep it there um, and make sure that we don't climb up. That said, you know um, I, I, I like I, I like a lot of the, the way Americans phrase things, you know, and and, uh, and uh, I, I like when Americans say, you know, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And I think that's the more we're in. You know, we're hoping for the best, of course, but hope is not a strategy. So we we, we need to prepare for the worst and be ready to whatever comes because we're seeing, you know, much more powerful countries and cities being brought down to their knees. Uh, and that's the case with places like, you know, Italy or Spain or or the U.S. or New York, I mean, you know, we really have to be very careful here in developing countries where we don't have the resources that others have um, to to contain this.
0: Thanks, Luis, and I have a, a question for um, for Felipe, and then I'm going to open it to the callers that have uh, indicated their interest in asking a question. Um, the, the, the question, Felipe, is that, you know, even though um, the border between Colombia and Venezuela has been closed, at least the formal crossing points, do you expect that the, the sort of ongoing collapse and economic difficulty in Venezuela will continue to send large numbers of people um, trying to cross in uh, uh, informal border? Um, crossings, even though the numbers of people, you said 33,000 have returned. um, It sounds like a lot, but compared to the number that are in the country or that could come in the future, it seems also very small. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your future expectations.
3: Yes, always we are thinking that we are going to receive more people. Some of the people that are returning now, we also, we are thinking that there are return again to Colombia in so many weeks. The conditions that the people that are returning are receiving there are absolutely a disaster. The Tachira state hasn't any capacity just to receive these people. And I think this is some um, like political use of the migrants from the Maduro's regime trying to call the people to say, please return to your country. Uh, they don't have the capacity. We are just facilitating, for humanitarian reasons that these people that are wants to return can do it in a humanitarian way, but we already are thinking that we need to strengthen our capacity in Norte and zone because maybe we have in the future have to support some of the people that are in the border and that want to return. Now the the border is officially closed and uh, the, the the public force, the police, and the military forces in both sides of the border are controlling the regular pathways, then the, the influx of people are really descending more than 95%. But, of course, we are thinking that if in two or three weeks, the conditions there are not improving. Maybe some of the people want to return again to Colombia. Then, yes, one of our main goals is to strengthen the capacity for the health sector, especially at the border, but because Venezuela is our main concern.
0: Great. And just, I can't resist asking this. Um, the international response uh, to help Colombia especially, but also countries like Peru and Ecuador, hasn't been at all sufficient. Um, what more can be done in the United States and Colombia to rally the donor community um, to pay attention to this crisis? which? This year looks like it will exceed in volume uh, the number of Syrian refugees around the world.
3: I have to say that the United States has been the main donor here, and we want to thank you not only the government but also the Congress and in a bipartisan way that have been supportive of that process and for, with more than 60% out of the money that we have received in the last two years. Also, the European Union and some other countries in the Europe, but of course we need more money. In per capita terms, if you compare this migratory crisis with other migratory crises, we are far below from the money that we are receiving and what we need more support because we are not only have to attend our people, and you know, we need to maintain an equilibrium in the supporting program for the migrants with the supporting program with the local people. And then we need we need money, and, and, and we are asking, as the President uh, has said many times and in many international forums, we need more international support. We have the commitment to continue with this policy with open arms and to receive the people, but we need more more money.
0: Right. Um, I'm going to turn to the, the first caller, um, Julie Turkowitz, uh, New York Times. You're up if you're still on the line. Can hear me? Yes, go ahead. <coughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much um, for all of you for holding this. Um, I'm actually based in, newly based in Colombia, so it's an interesting time
2: to uh, to move to a new place. Uh, Luis, I was wondering, you, you
4: said we're still early in this. Can you talk about, and forgive me, I hope this wasn't asked before when I was on the phone with the um, coordinator, but uh, what are public health officials telling you about when we'll see the height
1: of infections or obviously the possible height of infections how many days or weeks or months out are we from that, and what number might that
0: hit? Uh, Luis, question for you. Uh, Luis Guillermo, are you on the line? Hello?
2: Oh, s- sorry, I had my mute. My mute was on.
0: Okay. No, no, just... go ahead. Go ahead. But you heard the question?
2: Yes, I heard the question.
0: Great, thanks. Thank
2: um, and I was actually speaking, I just, just didn't know you guys could here. hear <laughs> me. But um, no, so when I said it was early, it's because Colombia was our, friend, our first uh, confirmed case, if I'm not mistaken, was on the 6th of, of um, March. And we became, again, please don't quote me on this, I think we, we were country number 86 to become infected so you know i mean there's at least 86 countries or 85 countries that have are have been ahead of us and have had you know experiences that are further ahead on the on the curve regarding the the your question on the on the on the on the on the 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 peak of, of the of the of the curve and all that you know i i rather i mean i'm not um, I'm not the, the, the vocero, the, what's it the, the spokesperson for the Ministry of Health. So, you know, things like that, which are sensitive and which do require a lot of technical knowledge, I'd rather not, not comment on that, as I may, may probably give you some, some wrong information. I think, you know, things such, such as those are, are better asked by someone at the Ministry of Health that can give the proper, the proper answer.
0: Thanks, Luis. Uh, we also have uh, Diego Chávez from the Migration Policy Institute here in Washington. Uh, Diego, are you there?
4: Yes, yeah, Cynthia. Hi. How are you?
0: Good. Thanks. Go ahead. Thank please. you for yeah.
4: Thank you for the opportunity. Um, well, first of all, just congratulate Felipe and Luis for for their efforts. And probably just a couple of questions. The first one, building on on. On the question that you raised uh, earlier, Cynthia, about the pendular migration and that possible waves of, of migration are going to be coming into the country in Colombia, Why, what is the need or what, where does it stop this humanitarian corridor that it has been actually opened? Um, because if we start to see in Colombia that the that the that they already collapsed health system in the country, in Venezuela, starts to pile up number of cases and migrants are start to coming in irregularly. Where does it stop this humanitarian corridor, and what is the reason behind this humanitarian corridor? And then the other one would be about the barriers that currently the government has faced to incorporate uh, health officials, or health or public health um, doctors and nurses from Venezuela into the into the process, and how have they na- navigated around this with the medical associations in the country? And what are the main difficulties that the government has right now in order to incorporate them? And if it's this a possible venue in the future. Thank you.
3: Now, thank you for your question, Diego. First of all, the humanitarian corridor is now working just from Colombia to Venezuela. We are not receiving any people from Venezuela to Colombia, and just a very few in the most critical humanitarian ways. Then, now, we, we have to wait. I don't want to put, like... like uh, Deadly numbers, you know, because when when we said uh, many journalists ask me every time, what is the the maximum number that you are going to receive? This is this is impossible to calculate. And we if, if we as a government put a daily number, when we arrive to the number where we are going to do, we are close. Uh, we can't. Then we we, we, we prefer don't put the numbers, and we are working on a daily basis. We are analyzing the process of the border, and now we are just helping some people that decided. Uh, even we offer that they can stay here and they, we can help here if they decided to return for humanitarian reasons, we are just helping them. Uh, about the health uh, professional from Venezuela, is this under evaluation from the Minister of Health and Minister of Education? There is, of course, as you can imagine, a lot of uh, very uh, uh, positive health uh, professional here that can validate their certification. And and, uh, this is under evaluation, and of course, there are some concerns from from some sectors, from the health professionals in Colombia, that this is under evaluation is not a decision. uh, There is not a there there is not a decision that has been taken, but it is under evaluation, and we hope that in the next week we can arrive to a conclusion how we can integrate these professionals. But we have to hear. Uh, the, the association of uh, health professionals from Colombia that they have some concerns, but there are so many other examples around the world that now are taking this this uh, experience. And yes, I'm, I'm, I'm working very closely with the Minister of Health and Education, and I hope to have some decisions very, very, very early. Thank
0: you. Okay. Uh, next up, we have uh, Michael Cook. From Amigos de las Americas, a program coordinator um, of this uh, volunteer and educational exchange program. Michael, are you still on the line? I am, thank you. Um, buenos dias. Um, I work, like
4: like said, I work alongside a program called Youth Ambassadors or Jóvenes Embajadores. Um, we work to support Latin American youth on creating social impact projects in their home communities. In Colombia, we have students working locally to create change from La Guajira to Medellin, El Choco. And lately, they've been asking me, What can I do? So I'm curious um, if you could share anything with these students on ways that they can engage in their local communities to keep healthy, whether that be local
0: mi- initiatives, social media campaigns, what would you recommend to them? I guess that's a call for that's a question for either one of you. Um, these are Michael. Let me just clarify. These are um, volunteers uh, through your program who are currently in Colombia. These are actually Colombian students in their home community. I see. Okay, go ahead.
3: I'm I'm not sure, Wade, do, do you want to answer? <laughs> I was I
2: was hoping you would answer. <laughs>
3: no, no, I. No.
2: Please, please, go ahead. No, no, please, sir. No, I was just thinking. You know, sometimes I mean, it's hard to 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 find ways to to capture all the energy and and uh, and get young entrepreneurs to work. We've had uh, quite a big success with uh, local ventilators. I, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but we have 26 different initiatives of of uh, you know students at universities and, and others. Working to develop a, a local version of the of the ventilator, and, and that's an important thing. Uh, if we manage to do that and bring it into production, we would solve a lot of the problems that we have right now. As far as like uh, uh, students, like high school students, and 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 um, and others who want to volunteer work, I, I can't think of anything specific right now. But I would say that the biggest cooperation that people can can provide is Following the guidelines, you know, stay home, stay safe, wash your hands, uh, avoid hugging, avoid kissing. I mean, Colombian culture, you, you know us. We, we, we love to hug, we love to kiss, we love to express emotion through physical contact. Uh, and, and if we manage to do that, you know, and then just have self-discipline, not, not to go out, not to gather, we're very sociable, we like, we like to party, we like to dance, uh, it's just we, we, we are able to change those behaviors for a while. I think that's the biggest um, biggest uh, collaboration we can get from anybody in the country.
0: Okay, um, I think we're running out of time. Luis, I have one more question for you. Um, you mentioned the, um, the tension, really, between uh, the public health imperatives um, and also the economic imperatives, and that leads me to ask what um, is being done from the Colombian private sector? Um, to work with the government, to work with civil society uh, more broadly, to work with their own employees um, to try to you know cushion some of this um, this burden. This is a, a private sector that has been extremely engaged in, um, um, in the in the political and, and social and communal life of the country, so I was wondering if you could comment on that.
2: Sure, so let me let me divide this into two two types of private sector you know we have the the, the private sector which are the the big colombian companies the the, the big banks the, the big industrial conglomerates and the response has been fantastic i mean from from donations to provide to to funding these entrepreneurs who are um who are uh, um, um building these uh, ventilators um to supporting us with uh, medical equipment uh, and talent. I have people in my team which have been, you know, uh, are on my team because their companies allow them to be here and they even some of them are still even paid by their companies, but, you know, they work with us uh, under a confidentiality agreement and and we we thank them a lot. So I I would say from the big, big, you know, or the bigger Colombian private sector, the, the response has been tremendous and very, very generous. But there's another part of the private sector of Colombia. Colombia, like most countries, is made up of, of uh, SMEs, and SMEs are having a hard time. And SMEs are the small restaurant down the, on the street, and SMEs are the the, the people who make uh, some sort of um, uh, uh, you know apparel in the in, in small shop. These SMEs are having a hard time, and these SMEs SMEs are you know are having to. To cut down their expenses, let people go, and so we we put together a, a you know a, a set of of uh, products, financial products to help them, uh, loans with guarantees and so forth to help SMEs. But they're having they're having a hard time. They're having a very hard time. Um, and and you know we 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 know that you know uh, SME mortality is going to be is going to be big, and that's a fact. And it's a, it's a very sad thing. But, but it's something that is going to come with this crisis. On the other hand, I forgot to mention, you know, big industries and also some, some smaller industries in Colombia have done a tremendous job at uh, converting themselves into producers of, um, of uh, equipment for protection of medical professionals. So a lot of companies in Colombia, in the, in the textile and apparel business, in the cosmetics business, in the plastics business, uh, have completely shifted their economy and move into, produ- into producing things that we need right now. And they've done this because they want to help. It's not because of an executive order or and any special powers mm-hmm. of the government. Just because these, these companies think they can, they can help um, the country navigate the crisis. And um, it's, been, it's been really important, actually. We opened up an RFP uh, this week and, and uh, we've had hundreds of companies signing up. And the number of, of Colombian companies is huge. Um, that have been able to transform themselves and to become suppliers to help us go through this these trying times.
0: Great, Luis. I think uh, we're out of time now. I just want to thank again both of you um, for joining us on the call, but also for the tremendous work that you're doing on on behalf of of your country and b- on behalf of the region. So we. Wish you all the best and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Um, I'd just like to mention that we will have an audio recording posted uh, on our website. We apologize to those who had to join late because there were difficulties with the line, but we will make sure that uh, this conversation is widely disseminated um, to the audience that that, that it's intended for. Um, So thank you again and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you all today.
0: Thank you so much and that does conclude today's
2: conference call. Thank you so much for your participation. You may disconnect at this time.